Welcome to The Screwball Story, a podcast that explores movies from one of classical Hollywood's most beloved genres, screwball comedy. I'm your host, Olympia Kiriakou, and each week I'll be taking you on a deep dive into one screwball classic. Screwball comedies would not be what they are without all the talented people who made them. So, in addition to the episodes focusing on a single film, I thought it'd be fun to also take deep dives into some of the genre's most interesting players. On this episode, we'll be talking about all things Jean Harlow with Sofia Dorelio. Sofia is a Jean Harlow researcher who runs the indispensable website harlowheaven.wordpress.com. I recently sat down with Sofia to discuss Jean Harlow's life and career. Here's our conversation. So welcome, Sophia. Thank you so much for joining me to discuss all things Jean Harlow. Hi, Olympia. It is great to be here. (laughs) Thank you. So before we get into um, Jean's comedies in particular, I know I want to cover a few of those, but I wanted to learn a little bit about you. Obviously, we're friends apart from this, but um, I want uh, my listeners to know how you first discovered Jean Harlow and what drew you to her in the first place. You know what? That's kind of a funny question because I feel like the way I discovered Jean is different from a lot of other people like I was watching a lot of random like not so popular 30s movies back in the day which I still do and I came across Riff Raff with like Mm. really no prior experience to her so that was my first outing with her and then I was like who's this she's great and then I was like oh it's that one blonde lady because she has brunette brunette hair in this film Mm -hmm. and so from there it kind of just became this whole thing I really liked her attitude in the film how scrappy she was and then here I am (laughs) (laughs) and you run Harlow Heaven can you tell me a little bit about how that got started Oh yeah, like at first, honestly, I just had a fan page because I felt like a lot of what was being shared about Jean Harlow online was very much just like, sexy blonde lady, mm, look mm. at her. So I felt like there was not so much content about who she was as a person outside of her image. So I strove to share a bit about that. And at some point I realized I was making all these giant Twitter threads. And I was like, okay, this needs to become its own website. <laughs> yeah, it's so important, I think, to, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but to actually like dive in beyond like the superficial star persona and to, you know, shine a light on who the actor was and, um, you know, all that complexity. And I, that's one of the things I love what you do with Harlow Heaven. Before we get into her comedies, I wanted to give maybe like a little overview, so sort of like a bird's eye overview of Jean's early career. So how did she get her start in in Hollywood? Her story in Hollywood's pretty interesting to me. She was um, living there from the time she was a child. Like she went to the Hollywood school for girls and then she moved back to Kansas City after her mom apparently didn't get her own acting career started. But then when she was, after she was married to her first husband, they went to Hollywood, you know, really because they didn't like the climate back East. And She took this one girl named Rosalie Roy. She was like, hey, um, I don't have a car. Can you take me to Fox Studios? And she was like, sure, because she was just like a socialite living in LA with her husband. She had nothing else to do. (laughs) Fill some time. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, of course, typically, just it's such a funny story. The Fox executives notice her in the car as opposed to her friend. And they're like, who are you? And she's like, oh, well, you know, it takes her a while to get persuaded there, but she eventually goes on a, on a bet. And it paid off. Yeah, it's such a strange story to me because, like, I think there was her mother's influence as well. She was like, yo, you need to go, you know. Yeah, that's one of the things that I noticed. I was rereading David Sten's book, for those of you listening who haven't read his biography, Bombshell. It's fantastic. I know Sophia always talks about it. But one of the things that, you know, crops up in his book over and over again is just, like, how... I guess, indifferent she was to becoming an actress at first and that it was her mom's ambition and something that she sort of was not apathetic. I don't know if apathetic's like the best word, but like sort of indifferent to that at first. Yeah, that's so interesting to me too. I think she really did a good thing by taking the dive into it. And I hate, mm-hmm. I don't hate it, but I think it's disingenuous when people go down the route that her mom forced her into acting because she yeah. has such a natural ability that you can't force that on somebody. When you frame it like that, it's interesting because it takes away Jean's agency and she wasn't like that. Exactly, she really wasn't. Like she was, you know, really under her mother's influence for sure. She really did not have her much, her own independence in that sense, but it wasn't like she was just like, okay, I'm gonna go um, create my own entire film career without anyone else's, without my own input here. One thing I noticed when I was reading reviews of some of her early performances is that the critics would talk about how she may not have been a good actress, but that she had this undeniable charm and star quality about her. Oh, exactly. Yes. Like how Roach in particular, and I know he said this when he was 99 years old. Here we go. He was like, there was something <laughs> out, like, outstanding about her. When I saw her, I knew that she had that quality. Everyone on the set thought so, even if they thought that she couldn't act or shit, they were like, wow, she's gorgeous. And she has something charismatic about her. And I think that's why she ended up in so many roles as she did. Definitely. And I, I mean, stardom, it's so interesting because it's like unquantifiable, obviously, and you never know who's going to become a star and who isn't. And it's more than, you know, just luck and talent. But if you could sort of define Jean's essence, what do you think sort of made her a star? Oh, there's so many. I think it's her just the way she combines just being nonchalant and having sexuality is great. Like she's innocent, but she 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 has a way of saying jokes like she doesn't get them, but you know she does. She's in on it, but she makes you think like she's not. It's such a fine like line to walk and she does it so perfectly. Exactly. I think it's something a lot of people don't get and it's something that extends even to Monroe's form of comedy is people are just like, oh, you know, that's what she thinks and what she, that's totally how she is, straightforward. And I think it's such a thin line there to walk for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, the dumb, that dumb blonde persona, there is a knowingness to it. It's like they're, the actors are, they're in on the joke and you know they're in on the joke. So it's not like they're, you know, you're not laughing at them, you're laughing with them. Totally. And then like, I don't know, just the way even Jean outside of comedy, I know we're mainly talking about comedy, but I feel like when she shot up so far in Hell's Angels, like, Mm -hmm. wasn't even too funny there. She was just gorgeous. Like, they dressed her in these open back gowns, and I think, honestly, a lot of her physicality had to do with her success, too, which is unfortunate, but she knows it. She knew. If you have it, you know, flaunt it, right? Exactly. It wasn't like she was uncomfortable with it. She was like, okay, I'll be naked. I won't wear underwear. What was her working relationship with Howard Hughes like? 
She was under contract with him for, for how long? Yeah, she was there from 1929 from, I think, right before Black freaking Tuesday or whatever with the Depression up until he was sold her contract to MGM, like, on her 21st birthday in 1932. So she was there for quite a bit, but she says herself she just didn't see him that many times. He wasn't really there. She didn't. He didn't respond to her telegrams. <laughs> just kind of this background presence. Exactly. He kind of just, you know let her deal with his subordinates and then would loan her out to other movies later on after he was done with her in Hell's Angels because he didn't have another project lined up. And was he, I, I read, I don't know if this is true, is he sort of instrumental in shaping that platinum blonde persona? I know the film Platinum Blonde had a different working title and then it changed to Platinum Blonde. So Lincoln Korberg Howard's assistant was the one that came up with the term Platinum Blonde after they decided to launch this campaign to find a good name for it. And I think the bummy names that they didn't choose are so funny. Oh, like what? Like the Joy Girl and the <laughs> Darling Cyclone. And I think Blonde Sunshine was one was kind of up there. That's that's better than the that's probably out of those three. That's probably the best one, but not very. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then there was some other one that was crazy, like Blonde Landslide. Like, that's probably way off. but so there's a that I just made. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm glad they stuck with Platinum Blonde because the others I don't think would have worked. Yeah, I think it's amazing, honestly, how a publicity campaign like that ended up with something that's just permanently in our cultural lexicon. Like, you, anyone knows what a Platinum Blonde is, but they don't necessarily know the story behind the term. Absolutely. It's like transcended that cultural moment and obviously i mean gene has too but it's interesting how that name and then you know in the 50s that iteration is sort of taken hold totally yeah like she was the mother <laughs> <laughs> she was She's the og <laughs> i don't really i think it's dangerous to consider somebody the true first though there were a lot of other blondes on the screen before her just the term platinum was made for her yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's it's hard when you have multiple people working at the same time to sort of pinpoint this is the first or this is the first moment this term was used. Exactly. I mean, with her, at least it's it's concrete there. But then I feel like it it just poo-poo's people like Mae Murray, mm -hmm. who did the blonde thing for a long time, and they're like, hey, what the hell? Yeah, it's hard when you have certain people who are so iconic. And I know, you know, this happens with Marilyn, too. They always attribute her as being the first woman to have ever run a production company of her own. And it obviously then sort of erases so many people from history. That's so ridiculous to me. Like, didn't Mary Pickford do that, like, years and years before? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Rita Hayworth did, too. So it's it's, like, weird to rewrite history for the sake of sort of bolstering up one person's persona. I know Marilyn's a whole other can of worms, but. Oh yeah, Marilyn, we can end up having a two hour long podcast with just going over. <laughs> exactly. Throw to Marilyn. I, I honestly, I, I began as a Marilyn fan when I first got into old Hollywood, but I, I can't imagine dealing with the level of like misinformation and just weird discourse about the person that I that I study so I'm kind of glad I left that fandom 
Oh, they're soldiers for sure. And honestly, I, I kind of, I feel a strange camaraderie with a lot of them because they go through the same motions that I go through with people being like, oh, Jean Harlow died because her kidneys were beaten up by her husband on her wedding night. Like, shut up. That didn't happen. So what do you think is like the biggest misconception that people have about Jean's life and career? Oh, gosh, there's so many big ones, I feel like, to me. The biggest one I feel like right now that I'm pushing back against, what I'm focusing on, is that she was just like this extension of her mother that didn't have any autonomy. I feel Mm -hmm. like that's so misogynistic at the root of it. I get that her mother was um, kind of an insidious presence in her life, but... I I feel sort of a strange connection to Jean in the sense too, which is what helped me get into her in the way that we both have not so great parents. Mm -hmm. And just to chalk that up to her going through the motions for her mom, even at the end there, like when people say that her death was directly caused by her mom saying she was a Christian scientist or whatever, a lot of that is so much more nuanced than what they say it is. It like as we were saying before, it reduces her to something so simple, and she she wasn't that. Uh, she was a complex person. She had her own agency, and wasn't the hair dye or anything to do with her, her mom only. It was, you know, she oh, had yes, the hair dye thing too. See, like <laughs> I, there's so many facets to just how how much her image has been dissected and just mm-hmm. torn apart. That part is so crazy to me too. Like I really question even the original formula that was given by Pajano. He was a kid. He was like, we were using Clorox and ammonia and Lux flakes. But then you look at his birthday and I think he was born in 1917, which would have made him a teenager supposedly working on (laughs) the foremost MGM stars, Platinum Locks, which really doesn't sit well with me. And I know the Harlow biographers took his word for it, but there's just something lacking there for me in documentation. And that right there is like that created the whole rumor that she died of that. Well, I mean, on the face of it, if you're, you know, there's no way a teenager is going to be, or even in someone in their early 20s is going to be working on someone as big as Jean Harlow. And it's hard. I totally relate when you're dealing with, you know, years of, you know, this certain discourse um, and mythology to sort of push back on that because it becomes so ingrained in, you know, our consciousness. Yeah, really. Like, it. I think there's just, it's insane. And if people are just so willing to take it, you know, without any further looks into it, because it's, you know, just a movie star, somebody who's meant to entertain me, their life is for my entertainment. And mm-hmm. I can say whatever I want about them. Yeah, it really strips them of, of their humanity. And it's, it's tragic in that way. Yeah, what's the other thing about Jean that really bugs me? Oh, yeah, like, I mean, the Shulman book did so much damage to her apparent or just her image what did he I, I don't think I've read that what did he say well he basically just reduces her to just this like harpy basically like she's oh. screaming at everyone she's rude she's mm-hmm. over sexual about every other paragraph he's mentioning her like reaching into her sweater to touch her own breasts and then like <laughs> into this description of her breasts and She's talking about sex all the time and she goes and sleeps with random men, which Jean Harlow would not have needed to do. That's ridiculous. Yeah, that's very misogynistic. I mean, yeah, a lot of the quotes from the from the Shulman bio, which for people listening is called Harlow, an intimate biography by Irving mm-hmm. Shulman. Um, they're still passed around as genuine quotes and it really bugs me because they're they're literally just he made them up and put them in 
Yeah, and people only take take these as real quotes because Arthur Landau was supposedly supposed to have been there at some point when he really wasn't. So I wanted to switch gears back to um, her comedies and talk about one, probably my favorite Harlow film, which is Redheaded Woman. And I think that's, I don't know if it's fair to say that that was one of her first sort of career making roles. Um, oh, it absolutely is fair to say. I think that movie really started it rolling after Hell's, like Hell's Angels made her a household name, but didn't make her the comedy star she is known for today. How did that film come about? Well, it was a Catherine Brush novel from 1931. And it was funny because, I mean, it was a MGM project long before Harlow came into the picture. And they really wanted it to be like this fun, sexy picture. But, you know, I just think it's funny that F. Scott Fitzgerald got brought onto the project first off. And I actually was talking about this earlier because I think that's such an odd choice for an MGM sex comedy. Especially uh, with Jean, very sort of out of sync with her style. By the time they removed him, Harlow still wasn't on the project, so there mm. wasn't much thought to her performance style, I think, but um, I just can't imagine the film without Anita Luce's guidance. And I'm going to say it like Luce. I know people say it Lowe's or whatever, but she said it Luce. Luce, yeah. <laughs> How do you think sort of Jean's character benefited from that change? It benefited, I think, from having... They gave her a sense of humor, really. Mm. I think it really would have been too traumatic with F. Scott Fitzgerald at the helm of the screenplay. And I haven't gotten the chance to go through the both entire screenplays, but I like the way Anita fr frames it by starting off with, so gentlemen prefer blondes, do they? That's <laughs> the first line spoken in the film. And it lets everyone know that even though this character's like crazy and she does horrible things, that it's a joke. It's so true. And what I, I think what I love about um, Redheaded Woman, unlike a film, let's say like Babyface, and for those of you listening, Babyface was Warner Brothers sort of direct response to Redheaded Woman is that the film really like allows Jean Harlow's character to be, you know, unapologetically selfish and delicious in sort of, um, rev she sort of revels in her own resourcefulness. And from the opening scene at that beauty parlor to her, you know, trying on the see-through dress all the way to the film's conclusion, it sort of just allows her to be who she is. And there's not like this heavy handed push for moral redemption. Yes, I love that you mentioned that. That's one of my favorite parts too. And I love that there was supposed to have been a sequel that, you know, ended up going in the dump, but there was going to be a sequel where she went to Paris. I didn't even know that. No yeah, way. The film oh. ends with her, like she doesn't even experience any sort of punishment. She just yeah. goes to Paris and ends up with her little chauffeur. Or no, she goes with the other richer guy and the chauffeur's driving them around. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> There was supposed to be a sequel, and I guess she wasn't even really digging it because she was trying to find better roles. She was like, I don't mm. want to be stuck in this sex comedy thing, which I get her frustration, but it, it truly was her forte. She's so good in that role, and it's you can tell she's really enjoying herself, and there's like that confidence about her in this film that I don't think you ever really quite saw as clearly up until that point. Yeah, she. I think... Really, she got so much good guidance from Thalberg and Luce and Paul Byrne, too. A lot mm -hmm. of really good mentors were around her at that point that brought out that talent that she really had. I think it was a total disservice to just be under Howard Hughes' stewardship mm -hmm. and just do movies like Iron Man. <laughs> yeah, you want people to sort of 
cultivate the best parts of you, especially in that formative phase of your career. And it's clear that, you know, MGM, Thalberg, Paul Byrne, they knew what to do with her. Absolutely. And I think she also learned a lot just from George Cukor, too, in Dinner at Eight, even though he only worked on the film for 10 days. And he won't take any credit. He's like, oh, no, she has a natural sense of comedy. I didn't do anything. And I agree with him. He didn't create that. But I think that her experience with, you know, Barrymore's and all those other great actors in Dinner at Eight really helped her. I think a lot of these old Hollywood actresses, they almost seem like older than they are. But when you step back and you realize she was like, what, 22, 23 at that point? Am I correct? Yeah, she had barely turned 22 when she was doing Dinner at Eight. I mean, she was a child to me when she was doing Hell's Angels because I'm 24 and she was 18. They were pimping out this 18-year-old. And yet here, you know, she's playing opposite in Dinner at Eight. You know, these veterans, John and Lionel Barrymore, Billy Burke, Marie Dressler, and she's not only you know, holding her own, but she's almost stealing every scene she's in, even though it might be unintentional. She just has such like a screen presence. Truly. And I mean, I'll be honest, I'm not the biggest fan of Dinner at Eight. I think it's a funny and fun film, but it's just, you know, it's a little boring. It drags in scenes that Harlow's not in. When I rewatch it, I mostly skip through everyone else's scenes and watch hers. And Marie Dresler agrees. Yeah, no, I think she's the most charismatic person in that film. And yeah, she just shines. And what I think, I, I, I read that George Cukor said that before he worked with her on Dinner at Eight, he said that she had this rare quality, I think we mentioned this earlier, about speaking lines that she didn't quite understand them. But then upon meeting her, he realized that, you know, she knew exactly what she was doing. And that's sort of part of her charm. Yeah, I actually, I don't, it's not exact, but I know he said that she played comedy as naturally as a hen lays an egg. <laughs> such an apt comparison. That's such a good quote. She's like right there with the best of them and she's so quick-witted and uh, she has such perfect timing. What do you think made her such a successful comedic actress? I think she had such just a natural upbeat personality. She could laugh at herself. She didn't take herself that seriously. Mm -hmm. And she was able to just let loose and be funny. I mean, I, I think it's really hard to be funny when you're uptight and you take yourself too seriously. Absolutely. Yeah, you need to sort of have that perspective. And then I could tell, I, I think in the sort of like the best of times, she was sort of, I don't know if this is the, the best word, but sort of ambivalent about her career and success and screen persona. So I think that really helps her in sort of harnessing that element that you need in comedy. Yeah, she was absolutely willing to learn. Like she was driven. And that's why I hate when people take that agency away from her that she just went along with it because she was always reading and, and watching other people act. Like I think it was uh, Capra on the Platinum Blonde set that said she would just sit there and watch other people as they read their lines so she could learn how to act. Th- that speaks to sort of her, her versatility. She was so much more than that, you know, Platinum Blonde, blonde, blonde bombshell. I know she was also a writer too, and she wrote a, a book. Yes, today is tonight. Mm. Oh man, I really wish I had gotten to see her do more of her own writing. She did, and she apparently burned some, which is so dumb. She did this in 35, I think, where she's like, I wrote all these original stories and I threw a lot of them in the fireplace because I think they're bad. And I'm like, wow. Can you imagine if we had those? For real. And I think my favorite story of hers is, thank God we have um, Extra Girls First close up. 
I put it on my blog. So if anyone wants to read it, they could just Google that and it'll probably come up. But um, it's basically just this one shot about an extra girl who finally gets her big break. And it's just the director wanting to zoom in on her legs. <laughs> I'm poking fun at like the, the sexism and I assume in a sort of a cheeky way. Yeah, it's totally like just it's about the difficulties of just being demeaned in the career when you don't have a big name, when you're just there for the money and trying to get through with it or, you know, they're trying to make money. I've never read her her novel. Is it, is, for those listening, is it available online that they could find it? Nope, it's actually pretty hard to find. It's oh. really not publicly accessible. And if you find a copy, good luck. You better have two pockets because they can run up to three to four hundred dollars. I don't even have my own copy, to be honest. I have oh literally borrowed it from libraries multiple times. Oh my god! <laughs> Anyone listening wants to buy me one for Christmas? I'm just please, kidding. please send it, send it to Sophia. <laughs> Another essential quality um, I think that Harlow brings to her comedies, and particularly a film like Switching Gears to Bombshell, is that rapid-fire dialogue and that comedic timing. And I watched that film again recently in preparation for this podcast, and just strikes me how impeccable her banter is with Lee Tracy, and to be able to find that rhythm where they're, you know, overlapping their dialogue in such a way that's like it's natural and it's also like electric. It's really the mark of a disciplined performer. Really, I agree with you there. I think Bombshell's a, and I sometimes make the mistake of recommending Bombshell to screwball rookies, and then they mm. come back like, "What the hell did you make me watch? I can't understand <laughs> anything anyone's saying." And I'm like, "Well, how many pages was it? I know I wrote this down. 160 page script, 95 minute runtime. That's pretty tight. Yeah, I yeah, it's insane. Just the breath control and her not having any stage experience whatsoever." even that it's hard because you you have to be so on and you have to also make it sound natural you don't want to make it sound like you're you're just reading from a script you have to make it sound like a conversation that's such a difficult thing to achieve and they do so well yeah I it's crazy Lee Tracy even said himself and he's such a veteran that she had a, a really natural sense of timing and I find it even more amazing around the same time frame, her best friend Barbara Brown said that she'd never even really saw her rehearse, that she would just kind mm. of look at a page of dialogue and then go out and do it. It seems that she was very much into the energy of her roles and and while she had command of her script, she was also interested in capturing the tone and spirit of the story she's working on. I think so. I think she had a pretty good grasp on the words, but she, yeah. She was she just good at kind of memorizing them and going going with them. Jean, of course, got her start with Laurel and Hardy. So what was her approach to comedy and her acting style? She didn't, I, she really let them do the bulk of directing her. Like, I know that Stan was like, you know, it comes naturally. Just let it come naturally. You can't force a joke. And she, in later in life, attributed a lot of her comedic ability to working in those comedies with them in particular yeah they're I mean they're masters at their craft so I can imagine that was quite an education for her to be thrown in with such you know yeah she effortless was performers she was so young too I think she mm -hmm. kind of was just soaked up as much as she could because she was like 17 18 and she was able to take the best of what they taught her and make it her own exactly 
I love Bacon Grabbers too. If anyone's if anyone's watching this, they should watch Bacon Grabbers. I don't think I've seen that. Bacon Grabbers is the one where it's these repo men trying to get this freaking radio from a guy who didn't pay for it. <laughs> and then Gene Harlow's there as his wife. And it's just the funniest little romp. It really is. And I think you can see such a, a window into her future comedy career by seeing her there as the wife. I love that. No, I've, I have to look that up now. I haven't seen it. It's Yeah, it's on. This one's on YouTube for sure. Definitely. Okay. I'm going to check that out. Circling back to um, to Bombshell, I think her her banter with Lee Tracy is just like one example of just her sort of natural camaraderie with her fellow actors. And obviously she has her own very distinct, or she had her own very distinct persona and style, but she's very much also like uh, an ensemble actor and that she could adapt so well to whoever she was playing with. She really could. She had such a versatile personality in that way. And I think Bombshell was is such a great movie because it was kind of designed specifically for her. I mean, a lot of it was based off of Clara Bow. Mm-hmm. With Victor Fleming's experience with her. <laughs> but I, I I love the movie too because it's such a um, reflection of her real life and at time. I feel like she could really apply herself and get out a lot of her emotions. Like in that big scene where she blows up at everyone, she's like, You can find an it girl, who girl, what girl. I'm I'm clearing out of this joint. Yeah, it's almost like she reaches a, a, a boiling point and it's like, Okay, I've had enough. You know, you can you know, go on without me and see how you survive. Exactly. I feel like a lot of that for her must have been catharsis or something she really wanted to say, dealing with her mom and stepfather at that point. Definitely. Did audiences at the time sort of draw parallels between that or was was the audience not necessarily aware of the dynamics in her personal life? I think it was something that emerged a little more later on because the movie itself was more like a here, let's make fun of Clara Bow. Mm. But later on, as you know, studio publicity became less apparent, especially after her death and her mom being really insane after her death. Sorry. But like, <laughs> I think more and more people started to be like, oh, this is really kind of a mirror of her personal life instead of just your average trouble. Remember you posted once on, um, I think, Twitter, a picture of her mom wearing one of her outfits to a premiere was it the Mary Antoinette premiere yeah I, I people think it's an innocent thing I see a lot of like oh her mother wearing her daughter's clothing after her passing but I think it's kind of scary yeah she wore her daughter's fur there's another picture there's more pictures of her wearing like her brooch and she's in the MGM commissary hanging out with Jeanette McDonald mm. like those aren't your friends no I that's like I mean I can't even imagine what it was like to you know deal with the death of your child but there's sort of a weird living through her memory vicariously it's sort of unsettling in some ways it it really is it it, there's so many things about it and like that painting she commissioned the one that was found recently and like she did so much borderline insane stuff i mean not that she didn't before gene passed away but you know we can do our own podcast just about gene's mom (laughs) there's a lot there yeah, for real. <laughs> Do you have a favorite Harlow co-star? Let me see. Okay, okay. I'm going to go against the grain here because any of the Zoomers here are going to really hate me for naming Clark Gable, but I'm going to go ahead and name Clark Gable. No, I agree with you. And obviously, as a Carol Lombard a researcher, I have my own thoughts about Clark Gable, but honestly, his chemistry with Gene Harlow is undeniable. I mean, they're just sexy together. 
they are somebody noticed that and they were like wow we're gonna put them together like and it was absolutely just a power team what do you think made them so compatible i think i mean they communicated in such a natural um funny way despite them being so sex charged and you know gable's this big key man you know as they like to call him back in the day even mm -hmm. Bash, and then she's this short little blonde girl and they really look like they should go together but then they have this added advantage of just having like you said with lee tracy but with the added chemistry there like they were friends too so they you can really tell that they like each other and i think obviously that comes across in the romantic scenes but also in their in their comedic ones and there's almost like this cheeky like school kid quality about them when they're together it's like you can see that they're having fun school kid that's such a great word to describe it you're reminding me of this um one interview anita loose actually interviewed them behind the scenes of hold your man and their mm. banter is hilarious she calls her the chromium blonde and she calls him like a big ohio hillbilly <laughs> that's so cute yeah you can see like they were like good friends i don't know he was devastated when when she died and he, obviously that was a testament to to their long friendship and I think my favorite scene in all of their, at least their comedies, is in Saratoga where Clark Gable's character is hiding under the couch. He doesn't want Walter Pigeon's character to, to know that he's in the room and Jean starts smoking his cigar. Oh yeah, her demeanor in that is so natural too. She's just like, what? I'm just smoking a cigar. I took it up, no biggie. It's so funny that she doesn't miss a beat and like the, the camera cuts between, you know, shots of her and then him under the couch. And it's just like this masterclass of like comedic timing and chemistry. It's, it's perfect. Yeah. I always think of when he hits his head. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you have a favorite film of theirs? I'm gonna probably say Hold Your Man right now. Mm. I don't know, cause Hold Your Man, the first half is so promising, but then it goes into this like redemption arc that I really don't like. But mm. I think the zaniness of it is what I like. It's a good one. I think, I, th I like Red Dust, I think the best, but Hold Your Man's a very close second. I think it's it's a cute film and I agree with the ending. It's a little heavy handed with that, um, their marriage at the end. But besides that, I mean, it's a very charming film. Yeah, and I don't really know why I don't say Red Dust. I think, honestly, the triangle aspect is less desirable to me than, like, the funny Clark Gable, Gene Harlow moments one-on-one -on -one and Hold Your Man. I think Yeah, but Red Dust is, like, definitely my second. <laughs> so the Gorgonzola exchange. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> yeah, that's cute. Yeah. And she also worked with Spencer Tracy a few times, first in Goldie, which I watched for the first time. Very poor copy. I was going to say, did your eyes survive? Yeah. <laughs> that was a migraine. Yeah, it's, I could think, I don't know if the person recording, they're in like a, a live audience because I heard people laughing. Oh, absolutely. It's it's actually, I think the copy that's floating around is just like a actually live recorded from like a freaking camcorder in the 90s of the last time they actually showed Goldie in a theater. Oh my God. So that's what we're watching is a video of a video that's circulating <laughs> online. Yeah, I, I kind of like Goldie in a weird way. It's kind of camp, like for lack of a better word. It's not great, but. Yeah, it's, it was cute for, for what it is. Um, I mean, I think exactly. it's nothing nothing memorable, but it's it's cute enough. And then they also worked in Riff Raff and then of course Libel Blady, which is probably my favorite pairing of, of, of theirs. Um, and that also brought her 
um, on screen with Myrna Loy and William Powell. So Jean obviously came into Libel Lady. She was at almost like the top of her game. She was riding on the success of, you know, like China Seas, Reckless. And yes, did she get it? I read that she got like a, a bonus for that film. She definitely got a salary increase. And I think that was much needed. Just I think both Norma Shearer and Joan Crawford were making more money than her at this mm. point, which it's not a competition, but she was definitely on equal footing with them. So she deserved it. Oh, absolutely. What was the experience like for her working on Libeled Lady? She loved it. Like she got to hang out with Bill Powell. They got to go up to San Francisco and there's that story about them going on location and um, the staff at the St. Francis hotel. I think I might not, I might be misremembering the hotel, but I think it was the St. Francis they thought that um, Myrna and Bill were actually married because of Thin Man. So they booked them in the same hotel room together. And obviously that was a problem. So Jean was like, here, Myrna, I'll spend the night with you and Bill can have the other room. I know Myrna talks about this in her autobiography, uh, Being and Becoming. And she says that her and Jean were like schoolgirls that night, just hanging out and gossiping about boys and just being two girls and that she really got to know her. And I think that's one of my favorite things about the libeled lady working team is just, I always think of that moment of the three of them having that actual like comedic thing in real life. That's very sweet. Yeah, you can tell that, I mean, Myrna Loy and William Powell already already have such an established screen presence, but you can tell that Jean fits right in with them and Tracy too, but their camaraderie on screen, their dynamic. It's just so effortless. Truly, I, I really love her with Myrna Loy. Like they have mm -hmm. such a funny way of balancing off each other since Myrna's so like tall and serious and classy. And then, you know, we have Jean that's short and brassy. Yeah, their styles definitely complement one another. And I think that's what makes that film so interesting is you have these four performers with such distinct styles and that they all blend together in such a perfect way. I really like her with Spencer Tracy too. Yeah, like what you mm. were saying. And that's really kind of the main redeeming factor of Goldie to me is here's the predecessor to their later working relationship. Riff Raff is great, but he's kind of annoying. <laughs> yeah. He's not satisfactory. I think in Libeled Lady, they really carved a certain niche there where I actually like them as a couple. Absolutely. And I think what's so interesting with, with Gladys is that like she's given the short end of the stick there. Warren's obviously completely like oblivious to her and he takes her for granted at some respects. And so she eventually falls for Bill simply because like he gives her this like little crumb of attention, but she's not necessarily, you feel sorry for her, but she's not like a sad character in that way, which is so interesting. Yeah, I really think it's mostly sad when you look at the background of her personal life juxtaposed against Live Lady when you realize that she actually was with Bill Powell and he would not marry her after yeah. Carol, which is so funny. But it's kind of bittersweet when you think of it in that way. Jean's relationship with William Powell is another one of those, I think, those misunderstandings that we were talking about earlier and that people always cite, oh, well, they were engaged when she died and that wasn't the case. And you're actually making me like, I might have to make a list, like a play-by-play -play article of just every misconception. Cause yeah, you should. Engaged. yeah, he gave her that sapphire ring, which she wore on her wrong hand mm -hmm. for an engagement. He gave Carol a similar ring too, when they were together. So he was obviously like in the market, he probably bought them in bulk. Yeah. I think that's so funny too, really like no originality as someone who's like the foremost 
like male sex symbol. He's putting that against Jean. He didn't want to marry her because, you know, mm -hmm. he was apparently threatened by Carol's uh, overt sexuality and confidence and that bled into his relationship with Jean. And then not even being able to present either of them a unique present and then Carol's buying her own. It's all such a funny thing to me. I think Carol and Jean liked each other enough. Oh, definitely. Yeah, the, I mean, Carol's relationship with, with Bill is very unique. And I know when she was with Russ Colombo, he was very jealous of, of Bill Powell. And if you read their personal letters, he's sort of like insinuating that they had an ongoing like sexual relationship and that he sort of kept calling her out in, the, in these letters. So it's, it's just a bizarre dynamic. So I'm sure it was a lot to walk into. Really, it is such a funny thing. Hollywood for you. I know. <laughs> All four of them, Clark, Carol, um, Bill, and Jean, all attended those the 37 Academy Awards, and yet we have no pictures. I'm so mad, I know. We only have that one, for those of you listening who don't know, there's only one photo of Jean and Carol together that we know of, and it's in this, I don't know, magazine, but it's like right on the, uh, the binding of the magazine, so it's not even a good quality photo. Yeah, it's this stupid Radio Mirror article about yeah. um, a feud between Walter Winchell and freaking Jimmy Fiddler. Like, who cares? <laughs> but we have this picture of Carol and Jean stuck in the middle. Hopefully the Academy Award photos are just like buried somewhere in an archive and somebody will find them one day. I'd hope so, because that was the year they were all up. Like, mm -hmm. that's such a historic photo. Did Jean care about that kind of thing like awards and box office popularity and stuff like that or was she sort of indifferent to that aspect of stardom no I think her she had sort of a low self-confidence which um played for her and against her in the way that she really wanted to connect with the people that made her movies popular instead of caring about awards she really just wanted to connect with the people who watched them and I think mm -hmm. that's really cool and I I like that about her rather than her caring a lot about her success. I mean, just the way people talk about her, like MGM workers all love to hang out with her on movie mm -hmm. sets. She would bring donuts and coffee for everyone. So there was a real loss when she passed away. I, it's, it's hard to fathom. And as I know we've talked about it before privately, but when, as you get closer to like with Carol, as you get closer to the age they were when they died, you just realize the magnitude of that loss and just how young they were and um, you know, how much life ahead of them they still had. Really, though, and Carol even was a good four years or whatever older, or three, actually, than Jean, mm -hmm. which isn't that much older, but it's crazy to me because I'm 24 and Jean was 26 when she passed away. And the, all the 26-year-olds I know were, like, just getting a lot of their stuff figured out, just getting out of college, just entering their first adult relationship. Yeah. Or just having a child or something. And Jean, like her life ended. It's really strange. It's it's sad. They they pack so much into their lives. Um, how do you think that blonde bombshell, platinum blonde persona has really shaped Jean's legacy today? It's definitely like pinpointed her as the like first person to do that which mm -hmm. I mean it definitely made her kind of an overly iconic figure there in the way that she's just not really talked about outside of that now mm -hmm. I mean it, it definitely I love her as the blonde bombshell I don't think it's a detriment but it also just kind of seems to be the only thing people talk about mm -hmm. there's not much 
discussion about her comedic ability or her timing as we're talking about right now. I mean, there is, but for the most part, people know her as the blonde bombshell. It's 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 kind of a double-edged sword to me because it, it does so much damage, but it's also the reason people know her. It's it's a hard thing to to sort of push back on. And that's one thing I always sort of admired about your work is that you don't necessarily focus on that. And you always make an effort to talk about, you know, the, the complexity of her life and uh, who she was as a person. And um, you treat that image as just like one component of her larger story. And so how do you as like a researcher deal with that balance of like acknowledging sort of this popular element in her persona, but also wanting to sort of focus on other aspects of her life? It's hard. A lot of people just kind of want to see pictures of the, the Harrell pictures and just see mm -hmm. the sexy poses and just see the same movie scenes. I've kind of just, it, it's hard to create that balance for sure. You have to realize that it's someone who's had a, like an image crafted for them. It's not mm -hmm. necessarily who they are. So you can't focus on that being like the sole aspect of everything they do. Like they had something else completely behind this. And I don't yeah. know, it's kind of a hard thing to balance really. Not everyone too wants to realize or look deeper into someone's image. It's about the people who actually do realize that there's a disconnect there between the way someone acts on a screen that's meant for your viewing and how they act behind closed doors. How do you think Jean should be remembered today? I think she should definitely be remembered as more, like I know I keep saying this on the broken record, as an actress and for her ability and her amazing sense of timing and just how kind of a person she was too. I think she should be remembered as just a genuinely good person. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there's just way too much going on about Dinner at Eight, to be honest. I think <laughs> I, there was more discussion about her other movies. I, I love that the costumes in Dinner at Eight, I love her moments in it, but let's talk about something else. It's just one aspect of her, of her career. Finally, if you could recommend one film, I guess we kind of touched on this a little bit, but if you could remember, recommend one film that sort of best captures Jean Harlow, what would it be and why? Um, wow. Well, they're all good for that. But once again, I'm going to say Bombshell just really because of how much it mirrors her personal life and how much it is like, it's a comedy. It's a comedy of her, like, making fun of the hectic lives of movie stars in Hollywood while she's living the hectic life of movie stars. So it's kind of farcical in that way. And I think people will, if they watch that movie, they will definitely gain a respect for her as a comedian. Mm. But they will also realize how much of a good dramatic actor she was too. Yeah, it definitely is a, a good example of her range. Yeah, she had all those moments with the with the baby and where she's just, she she does make you want to cry at certain points in Bombshell. I think it's a good good movie for people to watch as they're coming into her. But um, like I was saying, it's really fast paced. So if you haven't had any experience with Screwball, you might want to opt for something like Girl from Missouri. <laughs> or put on subtitles. When I was exactly. <laughs> when I was teaching um, His Girl Friday once, I played it without subtitles. And I uh, one of my students at the end came up and said, I didn't understand a word they said. Can you turn on the subtitles from now on? And I just, I guess because I'm just like so ingrained in the genre, it's like hard to approach it from someone who has never had any experience with it. It truly is. I, yeah, like I, I, I've showed what people who have no experience with film bombshell just because they've asked me why I like Jean and, and they don't get it. So it's, it's 
weird ground to walk, but I think the Screwball podcast, we're in safe company here. That's true. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, thank you so much, Sophia, for coming on to talk about Jean. I've really enjoyed our conversation. And before we go, if you could let everyone know where they could find you on like social media, your website. Oh, yeah. Okay. My website, I have harlowheaven.wordpress.com. Don't have an official domain yet, but you can also find me on social media on pretty much every platform under Harlow Heaven and Vitaphone Zone. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. That concludes this episode of The Screwball Story. The Screwball Story was researched, written, and recorded by me, Olympia Kiriakou. If you'd like to stay up to date on future episode releases and other news, please follow me on Instagram or Twitter at The Screwball Story. Thank you for listening, and we'll meet again next time. Bye bye! <laughs>